Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I want to make it easier for people to get married and have kids in this country. And the number one reason in 2018 that we had the lowest marriage rate of all time was not having the funds, not, you know, irreligiosity, secularization, any of that, which is something that is erroneously blamed by, in my view, like libertarian conservatives on people, when in reality, it's what you're talking about. It's the cruelty of an economic system, which makes it so that you are not living up and making the choices that you want to make. It should be a giant red flag to all of us if you have the lowest lowest marriage rates because of economic insecurity, the lowest childbearing rates because of economic insecurity. Yes. You talk to a young person uh, and they look up and say, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to settle down and get married and have a kid because I can barely like pay off my debt and keep a roof over my head. To me, right now, our goal should just be human flourishing. And I agree with you that most most all the time, the best way to have people flourish is to put the agency in their hands and let them make their own decisions. It's yet another crossover. The great Sagar and Jetty uh, from the, the Hill <laughs> is going to be on Yang Speaks and I'm going to be on The Realignment. Thank you, Andrew, for so much for joining the podcast. Really appreciate it, man. <laughs> appreciate you. I man, I thought you were young. I didn't realize you were as young as you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a young man. You know, you know you're a young man. I'm we not young like you, you, man. I mean, you're That's freaking true. late twenties, late twenties to mid forties. When you're in your late twenties, you can stay up to all hours. You can put anything you want. In your body, you can court injury and know that you'll <laughs> you'll bounce back. So I appreciate you lumping me in with yourself in, in that category. But I remember my late 20s, and there's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, tell me about your mid—let's start there, actually. Tell me about your mid-20s. Like, how did you ideologically kind of come— to where you are right now because you know just quick context like on my podcast and i know we have some similar missions here but mine is really just looking at the realignment in american politics you've always kind of embodied that you know huge amount of crossover with trump voters and more and the number one question i often get and that's one of the one i wanted to hear from you is how did you kind of come to see what was happening in this country you wrote your book before obviously you ran for your candidacy but how many years before that did you kind of see that you know the fourth industrial revolution kind of happening before your eyes well it took a lot of walking around the country um over the last now gosh nine years or so um, but I, I used to compare it to the, the parable of the 
Blind Men and the Elephant, mm -hmm. where you ask the blind men, uh, what does an elephant look like? And then one of them's holding the trunk and is like, a big thick snake. And then the other one's touching the leg and saying, like, a tree trunk. So in, in my case, I spent uh, seven years traveling the country for an organization that I started, Venture for America, that took me to Detroit, Cleveland, Baltimore, St. Louis, Birmingham, New Orleans, uh, and cities around the country. And I saw the aftermath of uh, automation of manufacturing jobs. And it was like a sledgehammer. I was walking around these places being like, wow, this place is not doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, it struck me that it's like, why is it that we're not, we don't seem to be having like an honest grappling with what it means to decimate manufacturing communities to this degree. So I'm uh, an entrepreneur and a practical type. So for me, you know, the, the interesting trajectory I've had is that you try and solve one problem and then it leads you to another problem and then it leads you to another problem. So for me, the problem I was trying to solve for seven years was that we weren't creating enough new businesses and entrepreneurship and, uh, business growth and job growth in communities around the country. And then I realized that the problems were much bigger and deeper. But certainly, Andrew Yang in his late 20s was not thinking any of this. Andrew Yang in his late 20s was just, you know, trying to get a date. I think what's interesting and what captured so many, so much interest about your candidacy and, and more was you didn't talk, you talk about it in terms of the fourth industrial revolution. Obviously, you know, we've, I've interviewed you in the past and you obviously understand some of the deeper, I mean, you obviously did the math. But you also spoke about it in a very visceral way. So when you were traveling those places and you're talking to these people, how did it come through like in their stories? Because something that I've always kind of come to understand is that elite economists and many others will try to explain phenomena away by being like, no, your job is gone, but you mu you're better off because of X. And that when you actually talk to real voters and people who have been you know, affected by automation, trade policy, or lock, last, loss of manufacturing, they know exactly why they lost their job and the macro force that it kind of brought about. So is that something that you saw like whenever you were traveling? Yeah, they did know what happened, particularly in a place like Detroit, where it, the urban center emptied out for the most part and the population drained away. Uh, and they know that it was a combination of globalization and trade deals and offshoring and also uh, the automation of many of their traditional manufacturing jobs. So they know. Uh, and I studied economics, so I understand the theory behind it. Uh, you know, like, oh, comparative advantage, you'll be fine. Or, you know, you'll learn how to do something that's higher value add. Uh, but then you go there and that stuff just seems farcical. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. you go there. Right. Uh, and there was a disconnect that uh, I struggled with. And then Trump won in 2016. I started Adventure of America in 2011. So I'd been doing that work for five years. And then Trump wins. And then I'm like, okay, uh, this is much deeper and nastier. And we're still, we, we're still not being honest about it somehow. So that, that was what drove me. But I, I am very interested in trying to figure out the genesis of my um, uh, of my approach in part because like I, I went to Brown University, which most people know, that's like a very liberal uh, college. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've been an operator and entrepreneur for 20 years or so. Uh, and, you know, they're just like facts on the ground that you have to deal with. And if you tell yourself a nonsense story and you're running a private company, uh, you're going to fail. You know? Yes, right. <laughs> like it's it's. 
you know, it's uh, inevitable. And so, you know, I like to think I just traffic in uh, as close a version to reality as I can find, uh, because if, if you're operating from reality, then you're more likely to be successful. And one of the frustrations I found, Sagar, is that, like, there's not a whole lot of trafficking in reality that, that's going on right now. Uh, and it's going to destroy us because we have this increasingly inchoate uh, set of arguments. Uh, and one thing that someone said to me, it was Lawrence Lessig, um, who said to me that we live in a vitocracy right now where I can't get anything done, but I can keep you from getting anything done. Right. And, and so there's a lot of negative power going on. Um, and we're in an era of unprecedented change. And so if you freeze government and say no one can get anything done, then you wind up with uh, problems that just get bigger and bigger and you become more and more behind the curve and out of date. I think that's a really profound point that you're making there, Andrew, because the the main thing that you're observing is that we can stop things from other getting done. And like I was saying, like I generally find the whole shtick about businessmen trying to run the country that way as pretty hokey because it's like, well, no, actually like a nation state is not a business and all that. But the one thing where I think it absolutely does apply is to your point was is that if you keep if you do something which is totally delusional you generally your business should fail like there should be at least some sort of incentive theoretically that's in democracy like voters should vote you out if you do fail and yet we've kind of come to a system where you have both parties which are invested very much in an ideology which has failed you know the fourth industrial revolution as you call it didn't really just occur out of nowhere how do we get to that point how do you think that the, the political system itself got broken to the point where it's generally impervious to the will of actual voters. I'm digging into this more and more, Sagar, which is what? why are we so uh, detached from our leaders or vice versa? And there are all of these layers between the people and our policymakers at this point. Uh, and you can go through them successively. I mean, number one is if, if an ordinary person tries to run for office, they have no chance of doing so because they're going to need a million bucks and the average human being is not going to be able to go get a million bucks to try and unseat the incumbent. And then there, you know, you, you might be in a district where it's safe red or safe blue. So your only option is to primary uh, the incumbent, which itself has some obstacles. If you're fortunate enough to actually get into office, then you're in a constant uh, fundraising hamster wheel where you're just constantly calling folks and dialing for dollars. And then the system serves as your moat where you're like, okay, now if I dial for dollars diligently, I now have a million dollar moat between me and anyone who's going to challenge me. Uh, you have this entire layer of corporate interest that then get in your ear and tell you what they think you should do. And when you're in DC, they're the only people that you'll actually talk to. Uh, there was an onion headline that was funny. It was the American people should hire uh, our own lobbyist to represent us on Capitol Hill. <laughs> yeah, and you right. laugh, but I was like, that's a pretty good idea. We should just have a lobbyist being like, you know what Americans think? Um, because at this point, you have a lobbyist for every other major trade group or set of industries is telling you what, what they think. Uh, and then you get into Congress and your incentives are not to reach across the aisle and get anything done um, because, you know, you might be in again in a, a seat where um, it's not serving the general public that is in your political interest. It's just to try and keep yourself from getting primaried uh, because of the way the districts have been drawn. So your job isn't necessarily to solve the work of the 
public or solve the problems of the public and do the people's work, uh, it's to raise enough money so you never lose, uh, to avoid getting primaried, uh, to avoid any scandal. So don't do anything that's going to put you into harm's way. Uh, you know, I guess some of them can't pull that one off. And then uh, to get your face on cable news, you can build a better public profile and then maybe try and advance yourself politically. Uh, and one of the things I was for on the campaign trail was for earmarks because they helped people reach across the island, get deals done. And mm-hmm. so if I wanted to try and pass this law um, and then you said, look, I can get on board with this law if you you know, help fund my bridge or museum or whatever it is. I think that's fine, you know, and then people could look at it and say that bridge of museums a waste. It's like, is it really? I mean, you know, someone wanted it mm-hmm. <laughs> like your member of Congress thought it was a good idea. Uh, so there there are these fundamental structural problems that keep uh, legislators from caring what we think. But a big part of it, Sagar, is the media, where the media is not really holding anyone accountable to a uniform set of facts anymore. There's just this back and forth news of the day. Uh, and the rise and fall of many characters uh, so that, that there's like an increased level of uh, both confusion and despair among the average American. And so a lot of Americans just check out our politics altogether and say, well, this is a waste of time. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, I've been I'm obsessed with this study from the Knight Foundation called like the 100 million project. And they look at the reason the 100 million people in America who don't vote and why they don't vote. It's like a broad cross section. And the number one reason why is apathy with the political system. They have no faith in both political, in all political institutions, in business institutions, in all of the general institutions of American life. So when they look at voting, I mean, I love this. I think there was a story from 2016 from a barbershop in Milwaukee, um, a black barbershop, and they actually went in and people said, you know, I didn't vote and I don't really feel bad about it. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more.
You focus in there on the media, and I know you're really into, as I am as well, kind of what the future of media might look like. And I'm really fascinated, Andrew, because you came up, I mean, you got popular on independent media, Joe Rogan, on my show, and many other different places across the internet, but now you're kind of in the it, belly it of the beast. It was Joe so down here and you yeah. up here. Down right, here. of course. I mean, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, as a fellow Rogan guest, you know, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, I mean, but now you're in the belly of the beast. You're on CNN. You're on these CNN kind of post-election panels. So just talk to us about that. Like, you are someone who looks very much at future of the media, how it can be solved, also kind of working within CNN. What's that like? Well, I certainly went through this media ringer, uh, and I appreciate you and Crystal um, and folks like Joe and Sam Harris uh, and so many others, Breakfast Club, that had me on when I was not as mainstream, I suppose, and just heard me out and uh, talked about my campaign. Uh, now being on CNN, like I have more insight into the goods and bads of how the media works. Uh, and... I've been honest saying, look, for me, being on CNN, I think, is very positive because it helps just get my face and voice in front of uh, Americans in a way that can help advance our our goals and ideas. Uh, And I will say, being on CNN, I have never gotten any notes in terms of, hey, um, maybe you should try and make this point or feedback being like, hey, that point was not great. Right. (laughs) Or go down this direction. So, uh, you know, on that level, um, it's quite positive. But I also see that there are incentives wrapped up in the medium that end up driving coverage in particular ways. And that the medium doesn't allow for particular types of conversations or ideas to get out that might not fit into the rhythm of a five-minute cable news hit uh, that in those news hits comprise the vast majority of the coverage because the thought is that, well, if you're a TV audience, like you need to keep things snappy and then kind of mm-hmm. get in and out and we have like graphic and video and some other stuff. Uh, so I, I, let's just say that, you know, being part of the media is just fueling my desire to try to uh, change the incentives in ways that'll make it work better for more Americans. Uh, and I, I say this, in particular about the thousand plus local newspapers that went out of business. So are there issues with cable news? Yes, major issues. Uh, But at least they exist. You know, if you have no local paper, it's very hard uh, to vote on what's going on in your town. Uh, And so what's going on in media is is a microcosm of what is going wrong in American life, which is just the market runs everything. And so if you're like, post office doesn't make money, fuck the post office. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, that local paper didn't make money anymore. Get rid of it. It's like, well, maybe that local paper actually had some value to the people in that town beyond the fact that it made uh, money as a private concern. Uh, so I'm after it in a big way, Sagar, because to me, we have to fix democracy. And, and it's going to be difficult to fix democracy if you don't have uh, certain types of functioning media organizations. Yeah, and let's talk about the incentives there, because we've talked a lot here on you know on my podcast just about the way that the media business is changing. You know, you have first you had the click ad revenue model. Of course, there was a monopoly on classified ads. Now that's gone with Facebook, Google, 
and so much more. I actually use a line all the time that I think you said on my show, which is that the internet naturally selects for monopolies. Like nobody wants to use the fourth worst Google, the second best Facebook or whatever. But so if we're going to live within that system with realities, and I've always appreciated that you're fair, right? That, you know, people actually, people don't really want to use multiple Facebooks or multiple Googles. If we're going to use, if we're going to live in that world, what do we do with media? So because how do we actually make it so, because you don't want government subsidized local news either. I mean that, you know, we're talking about earmarks and pork. Like I actually do want, and this is where we disagree. I do See, want I think government that's subsidized local news. Yeah, but how, how would you protect it? Um, how would you protect it from, you know, legislators who are using it as a bargaining chip? Like if you look at what's happening right now with Voice of America and the global news um, agency, there have been all these accusations like, oh, Trump put in this person. And, you know, even though this person has been selected by Congress. So if we were going to fund it, like what are the ways that we could do it while keeping it independent with the essential role that media has and then also protecting it from political influence? Is it even possible? I think it is possible. And I think that there are a few different parties that need to be part of it. Uh, Number one is government. Number two is uh, nonprofits and NGOs. And then number three are the the media companies. And I think there's a way you can fund it where let's say hypothetically you said, guess what? Getting quality information about what's going on in your community is a public good. And we're just going to say that there's a certain amount of money that gets allocated for every congressional district based on population. And there's going to be like a local paper that ends up being the beneficiary of this or like a local station or whatever, like the local organs are. And it could be public private. Uh, You know, it could even be in some cases philanthropic, Uh, but that there are different approaches. These media organizations could a hundred percent exist if they weren't forced to throw off market level profits every given quarter. Mm -hmm. So what do I mean by that? It's like, look, my local paper can't compete but if you had a, a combination public private and you had a paper that made a certain amount of money and then spent that much money on coverage and it broke even every year obviously no one would invest in that because you know it's a terrible business <laughs> but uh, as the public would you invest in that probably i mean you'd, you you know you'd put it in place and then at least you don't have to necess- and and in my mind it would be worth the subsidy i have no problem with subsidizing uh, local journalism And I also think, Sagar, this is a fundamental issue. Mm -hmm. um, And and this is where I possibly, and I think I'm clear-headed about this, genuinely. This is probably where you and I disagree. Well, conservatives look up and say, hey, you can't have government involved with local media because it'll become politicized and a bargaining chip uh, and they might influence coverage, et cetera, et cetera. And then I look at it and say, okay, the current situation is literally zero. <laughs> like, yeah. like, can you right. improve on zero? Uh, and if you have issues around politicization and the rest of it, you can look around the world and say, look, are there independent media organizations that are publicly funded that seem like they're okay criticizing the government? And you would find, yes, they do exist. You know, you could hold up the BBC as one potential example and say that, is it perfect? No, but does it exist? And do a lot of people get value from it and like does it seem fairly independent journalistically and able to critique leaders yeah sure uh and so the 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 correct approach is not in my opinion just throw up your hands and say can't do it like government's Mm -hmm. gonna screw it up somehow instead you have to get into the weeds of and say look like the current path is leading towards 
in this case, total absence of local journalism, which I would argue is very disastrous for, for democracy. So then you have to just put your hard hat on and roll up your sleeves and say, okay, what are the issues we're concerned about? You don't want politicians being able to yank funding every time that the the news organization says something nasty about them. Well, then like, let's see if we can make this funding mechanism independent uh, of uh, of Congress's whims. Maybe you have like very long time frames or you can only make changes like X years in advance when <laughs> you know, like, like, like it might not sure. matter to you anyway. Right. Uh, so like that to me is like a more uh, principled approach. Um, but and this is the tough truth as someone who and it's fun because I know some people like me because they think I have some libertarian impulses and leanings and whatnot. <laughs> um, like I, I am very conscious of the fact that there are a lot of things, in my opinion, government is terrible at and you'd rather not have them involved with it. But there, there's also this tough truth that we're in an era where you're going to need government at a minimum to inject resources into certain types of institutions or to solve certain types of problems because there's so many problems we have that the market will not have any interest in solving. So I actually completely agree with you. And, you know, people, you know, who, who know me know that it's not about the government intervention necessarily that I'm most concerned about. It's actually that I'm not so sure that we don't have a private sector solution. And the reason I say that is because I look at somebody like you who was born, like I said, with the Joe Rogan of the internet, I see this burgeoning alternative media ecosystem. I see Substack. I see what's happening in Silicon Valley with tech and so much more, the explosion of new businesses and more. And I say, you know what? There's something going on here. There's a realignment, so to speak, right? And maybe oh, there's- what, what does the realignment stand for? Is realignment politics or- It's everything. It's See, that's, that's the thing is, originally it kind of began as politics. We were like, oh, well, there's this realignment where, I mean, at the most basic sense, it was Obama voters then going to vote for Trump, like in the political level. Clearly something happened there, changing political coalitions. Then we started talking about it with Bernie, all this crossover between Bernie Sanders voters and Trump voters. Same with your candidacy, which is why I was kind of obsessed with, because you ran and you had 42% of Trump voters who were supporting a Democrat for the presidential nominee. Clearly, there's a cross-cutting message there which is happening. But the thing is, the more you look at it, you have changing business, you know, changing media landscape, changing business landscape, you're changing political coalitions is like the craziest election in a long, maybe crazier than the one before that. So I kind of apply it as a framework towards any everything. And that's what I mean when I say I look at the media. And I know you're involved in the tech space as well. I see this explosion of Substack. I see this explosion of independent journalists, guys like Matt Taibbi, Joe Rogan going to Spotify, the emergence of this whole new culture. And I'm like, what what we what it's really up to, up to is entrepreneurs and others is to find a way in order to make that work for local news. And if that actually cannot work, if we truly cannot work. I'm not above the public solution whatsoever. It's more about jumping towards that a little bit too quickly, if that it, makes it, sense. It can't work, brother. You know, uh, the, the the numbers guy has looked at it and said, yeah. this is a total disaster. And when when companies have invested tens of millions in it, you remember Patch? Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, it was just setting money on fire. Um, the local papers have all become, you know, desiccated husks or disappeared. And I walked through those offices because I was campaigning in rural Iowa and New Hampshire and elsewhere. And so you go interview with a local paper 
and guess what that office looks like now? It's half empty and, you know, people are looking around wondering if they're going to survive. Um, and that's pre-pandemic. I mean, post-pandemic, the stuff's even worse. You know, can you imagine being like a free weekly in Austin or Boston or wherever trying to survive now? I mean, it doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense. Like the, the, the you, I, I am, um, I'm sure that there is no uh, entrepreneurial market-based solution um, for local journalism, unless you were to have something like universal basic income where people had the, their needs met and then if they wanted to, they could write about stuff. Uh, but even then you would have certain types of journalism that were not included in that uh, because like a local blog is not the same as having sure. uh, a genuine uh, news organization. So, well, this is interesting. So how, do, how what's your framework for looking at it? Because I mean, you. I mean, I think I remember you supporting democracy dollars. Is would it be somewhere in the same vein whenever it comes to media? Would it be like you give X amount of money to folks, kind of like a UBI, and then say that you have to spend X amount as on a subscription to a journalist or a publication that you want, or is it that we would decide which publications exist? Yeah, the, like I, I'd like to give people uh, essentially media dollars or uh, journalism dollars. Um, and even then, unfortunately, I, I don't think it would necessarily solve all of your problems. And so I, I think we would need to subsidize local journalism still, because if I gave you media dollars, you might use it on a bunch of podcasters and then there still might know it to be known. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but that is the general approach, uh, because one of the problems with our media coverage is that uh, one, and, and here's the thing I, I want you to, to know, Sagar, and you're, you're, it's hard for you to know this because you're... Um, uh, you know, still up and coming. Uh, but all of the people you and I see are already at like the top of the pyramid. You know what I mean? Sure. Yourself included. You know, it's like, like, like if you say like, oh, well, we, you know, scrappy podcasts and like make this stuff work and whatnot. It's like, yeah, some people can, mm-hmm. you know, but like, but, but it, it's not a replacement for uh, what we're eliminating. It's a little bit like, you know, like Amazon to retail or whatever. It's like, you know, you're going to get rid of, whatever, 10 million mall jobs, then you're going to end up with like 800,000 Amazon employees. You know, you're going to get rid of, you're going to get rid of a million local journalists and then you'll have like, um, you know, 100,000 podcasters, like only 20,000 of whom can like buy health insurance. <laughs> right. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. 
Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. The big problem I see is that we're also conditioned to just this sort of make it work positive market mentality that you'll see people making arguments based upon like, we'll adapt. Like, like yeah. it's okay. You can go to some local newspaper and they'll be like, we'll adapt. And you'd be like, you all are fucked. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> like, 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 that's like, you know, that, that, I mean, that, that's like, um, it, it, it's, I, I've actually now seen that, that that's one of the things that's driving us to distress is like, there, there's this, uh, disintegration of people's situations, but then they're, they're being forced to put on brave faces, uh, yeah, like, you know, like I've had so many conversations that resemble that. Um, and the, the issue really is that we have this, this system-wide fabric that is tearing in various ways uh, and we're not able to mend it. Um, and our organizations can't even really talk about it because it's not what they're measuring. I think you're right. I, and I absolutely agree, which is that, you know, hustle porn is kind of like what I like to call it. Like hustle porn is not a substitute for like safety net or a government society, which will actually ensure that the way that you can live your life is prosperous or not. And I think that that's actually a really key point, which is the way I kind of see it is that after 2008, we basically pushed economic risk down to the individual. Like we, we de-risked de corporate the corporate sector, we de-risk, you know, the financial sector and so much more. And it became incumbent upon others like you and me. Well, actually, you're right. You know, we're already at the top, so to speak. It, it came incumbent upon everyone in order to have a little bit of risk and then also bear a lot of the brunt of that, which I don't think is really fair economically. But that kind of brings me to an interesting thing here, which is that you've kind of zeroed in on local news as a specific where the government has to specifically prop this thing up. Even if we were to give people media dollars, I might go spend it on my podcasters, so to speak. It runs a little counter to UBI and the way that you look at it. Because I think one of the reasons that I'd always kind of raised questions about UBI and others had too, which is that how do we know that the money is necessarily going to flow to the sectors of the economy, which we know we need to prop up the most or that we consider essential as a nation state? Um, and that's kind of the framework that you are adopting here with media. So I'm curious why it was your signature solution whenever it came to the economy. And I've, I've seen the folks who are struggling around the country and uh, I have minimal interest in trying to build up this giant array of new government programs that may reach those hundred million people that right. just don't care about any of it. Uh, you know, you try and talk them into it being like, no, this will be awesome for you. And they're just like, <laughs> um, and, and so I, I thought I still believe very, uh, very confidently that putting resources into people's hands would be the best way to actually address any of the other goals that you're trying to address, be it entrepreneurship or small businesses, um, healthcare, education, uh, our political polarization, putting in money into people's hands would be helpful for all of it. And one of the frustrations I think we're having, and this is from the math too. It's like if you increase everyone's costs by 200 to 250% gradually over time um, and you don't increase their income in a real way, uh, you know, and they look around being like, why can I not send my kid to college anymore without taking out like giant yeah. debt? Like why is daycare so crazy expensive? Like why 
why are we um, getting hooked on these opiates while people profit to billions of dollars from our addiction? No, they're just looking around saying, um, this is getting worse and worse for me. Uh, and, and the thing that I was so, uh, I still get angry about is that like, there's a lot of like, well, it's somehow your fault, you know? And, and, and it's, a, it's like, no, actually, it, it's the fact that we have allowed our system be, to become so inhuman. And so tilted towards the almighty dollar and the corporations that make the dollars as opposed to just the average uh, young man trying to make it or the, you know, uh, mom trying to figure out how to provide a decent life. Uh, it makes me really sad and angry. And then if you look to try and solve that, uh, the best thing that you could do is put money in their hands. And then the, like the money would end up guiding many of our institutions and many of our companies toward uh, trying to serve their needs better, uh, you know, like it, it. And this is one thing that frustrates me about a lot of people. It's like you look up and you're like, okay, things have gotten demented over the last, uh, let's call it, forty years. Uh, one example, uh, you know, might be. I mean, yeah, you, you know, freaking just pick an example. Um, and then the, there are people who want to fix it that just seem to be casting about for a different solutions from the past uh and, and it's like they they think that we can dial back time itself to 1980 or that it's like there's like right. a time machine it's like no you know it's 2020 you look around um the economy's turned on more and more of us and turned us against each other and we're all getting uh stuck like rats in a maze uh you know you get money into people's hands and then it, it ends up alleviating a lot of this and there were these people who like i was shocked sagar when i ran i thought i'd be like the you know, the, the guy who is even um, more radical than Bernie or whatnot. <laughs> like, you know, it's like even Bernie didn't take it this far. Uh -huh. uh, but but instead, I wound up attracting a totally different group of people, which I still find very invigorating and exciting. But there were people like me and maybe to some extent you where you're like, oh, this is like a different approach to things. Like, oh, this person seems more interested in what the facts are on the ground. Um, and he doesn't really want to waste any time like attacking, you know, like uh, someone, be it. I, and what Van says is either immigrants or billionaires, depending upon which part of the spectrum you're on. It's like right. I actually don't have that much of an interest in throwing rocks at anybody. Like I, I'm just saying, look, here's the situation. It's terrible for, for many, many people. It was terrible pre-pandemic. Here's how we can fix it. Uh, I, you know, I'm curious on your side. Because I, I regard you as an intelligent conservative. I feel like if I was an intelligent conservative, you know, that I'd have deep misgivings about the current direction of the Republican Party. Uh, but but there, there's like a, this, yeah, the, this tough sense of, um, you know, uh, of the fact that, that not many people have been living up to the uh, true ideals of conservatism in my mind. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, I also think that it's about the way that we think about the word conservatism itself. I mean, the the truth is conservatism, in my view, has, I mean, I also have to tell these libertarians, libertarians, actually, I don't have a lot in common with you. I think it's been hijacked by libertarianism over the last 30 years. And if you look at what we're trying to conserve or what is conservative or what does it even mean to pursue economic conservative policy, most people unfortunately would say, oh, they're for debts, deficits, and better spending in government. And it's like, well, in my view, economic conservatism should be using economic policy to achieve conservative ends. And when I mean that, what I mean by that is I want to make it easier for people to get married and have kids in this country. 
And the number one reason in 2018 that we had lack of, or we had the lowest marriage rate of all time was the number one reason that people cited was not having the funds, not, you know, irreligiosity, secularization, any of that, which is something that is erroneously blamed by, in my view, like libertarian conservatives on, they, uh, they try to blame people when in reality, it's what you're talking about. It's the cruelty of an economic system, which makes it so that you are not living up and making the choices that you want to make. I fundamentally believe also in trusting people. And I think that by trusting people that they will choose almost generally in order to go, in order to take and make choices that are best for them, which also align kind of what I mean when I say economic conservatism. I'm incredibly excited that that's the way you frame the challenge, because I agree that's the challenge is like to me, if you don't have families, like what's the point? And, yeah. you know, like I'm a dad uh, and I agree with you that it's it should be a giant red flag to all of us if you have the lowest lowest marriage rates because of economic insecurity, the lowest childbearing rates because of economic insecurity. Yes. You talk to a young person uh, and they look up and say, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to settle down and get married and have a kid because I can barely like pay off my debt and keep a roof over my head and like, you know, and just be able to do my make work um, uh, stuff to make ends meet. Um, and I think that to me, Right now, our goal should just be human flourishing. And I agree with you that most most all the time, the best way to have people flourish is to put the agency in their hands uh, and let them make their own decisions. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. What I saw in Trump, what a lot of people on my side saw, was this person opening the door and kicking over all of the people who define kind of conservatism in the way that I was talking about. In defining it as the love of free markets, very much like a Mitt Romneyism, 2012, makers and takers, and, and demonizing really people who have been crushed by a neoliberal economic system. And so whenever I have my misgivings, like I'm, we're right now, you and I are talking in the midst of the RNC, my misgiving is that I see the GOP straying away even farther over the last four years, kind of since the day that Trump won and the RNC kind of took it over and you had these traditional conservative elements and he didn't actually live up as much to the, the worker promises that he made during his campaign. And similarly here at the RNC, that to me, what I want it to be is much more like that 2016 campaign. Like I was watching... Um, some clips of Hillary Clinton, you know, defending NAFTA and and talking about, you know, jobs. And, and I know I know that it, in your view, it doesn't always align with trade. But really what it actually came down to, it's not about trade versus automation, although we can you can discuss that. It's about compassion for not lecturing these people and saying that your your life is better because we get, you know, your job left here and your life is still better or 
your job left here and it's now on you to move to an ex-urban, you know, suburb and live in a smaller town. I mean, the truth is, I can't remember which study I was seeing. This is, again, kind of comes back to economic conservatism for me, which is localism. You know, a lot of people really enjoy where they're from and they want to live near their mom and their grandparents. And there's nothing wrong with that. Saying you have to move is a terrible uh, recipe that that would get rocks thrown at you in many, many American towns and deservedly so. I mean, to me, if you're in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, it should not be that you have to uproot yourself and your family to live a decent life. Uh, now, should we be encouraging dynamism? Yes, uh, you know, but should we make it so that if you choose not to move, you die? No. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> no, right. Or or get hooked on opioids. Or, and this comes down to monopolization. This is another something I, I, I'm really interested in, which is that one of the, you know, the deep, one of the most pernicious things that somebody told me, I won't name him because he's high level in economics, but he said, you know, I'm unconvinced that the best scenario for Amazon is not 10% unemployment or, you know, PERMA 10 to 15% unemployment. And the reason being that if you're in a rural or a small town, that the best, pay- the best paying job, so to speak, and really the only option for you is to work in an Amazon warehouse at a very set wage in a not, which is non-unionized. And there is a level of, you know, corporate control there over the way that you're conducting your life and your, you know, uni- un- your singular option of being able to live that I do think is unacceptable. How do you, how have you always looked at the monopolization question? Because I know you toyed with it, you know, between tech and then the regular sector too. I don't think we have truly reckoned with what it means to have trillion dollar companies that dominate so much of our waking life, uh, you know, and it was to me a source of great amusement watching these trillion dollar companies pretend to be scrappy startups in front of congress the other week it was like oh you know (laughs) we're not number one at all (laughs) we could be upended any day by those tiktokers or whatever it's like we wouldn't have crushed instagram no like you know it's like the the whole thing it's like oh no like watching them uh try and recast themselves um yeah that that the consequences of having companies at that scale uh, are unknown to us, uh, but they're extreme. And one of the things I kept saying to folks is like, look, at this point, um, Amazon no longer uh, has to obey the rules of business physics anymore. It's just like this voracious black hole. Yes. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> of, yeah. uh, you know, it's like it could decide not to make money in a given quarter and it, it would still be a trillion dollar company. Uh, you can't compete with them in any meaningful way. They have uh, essentially unlimited resources and access to more data than anyone else. Uh, you know that like they're they'll trumpet the fact that they're hiring tens of thousands of Americans while uh, while retail is is shutting down. Oh, I mean made light of it earlier about what, right. what's going to happen. Uh, and and so the the old toolkit would be like, well, break them up. And I, I think that there needs to be a breakup of some of these companies in some verticals. Uh, but I also don't think that actually solves the problem because you wind up with uh, still uh, these network effects that just advantage whatever company is at, is at the hub. And right now, our government is so bad at this where we're essentially 25 years behind the curve. So any company that's come into existence over the last 25 years, yeah. we're like, don't know, like, don't yeah, know what yeah, you're doing. Like- <laughs> uh, and, and then we have this mistrust of government being like, well, you're slow. 
and behind the times, and they're really smart <laughs> and ahead of the times. They should decide what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that, that's been one of the ways we're conditioned. Uh, so the optimal path would be that we go to each of the big four or five companies and, and just say, look, we have company-specific issues with you. Trying to apply a one-size-fits-all antitrust framework doesn't even make sense. Right. Uh, like we're going to have to craft tailored legislation um, and figure out what the worst aspects of your enormity are and then circumscribe them. So in Facebook's case, it might be like, well, what are our biggest beefs with you? Uh, the the erosion or uh, or near decimation of our democracy, I would say, would be the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the fact that they sell and resell us and our data for tens of billions of dollars a year might be second. <laughs> and then the third might be uh, the fact that they have a near monopoly on uh, certain types of social media because they did buy Instagram and WhatsApp. And so maybe we have to to do something about that. And then there, there might be mental health of our kids associated with Instagram use. Uh, you go down the list and just try and figure out what, e- what each issue is. Um, like I'm not against size for size's sake. I'm against size if it ends up um, hurting us in various mm. ways. And then you'd have to write company specific legislation um, for Facebook. Essentially, don't pretend it's like we're going to take out a 20th century framework before the internet even existed back when they were talking about, you know, freaking yeah. like this company makes too much steel. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you right. know, like it's a very, very different world now. Yeah, I th- it's it's funny you said that. I, I what I always loved about your campaign was the feeling that I wasn't living in ossified Washington. You know, like because I've covered these guys on Capitol Hill and so much more, and it was I, I'll never forget him being like, "Why does my iPhone listen to me?" And I was I was like, "All right, like when you're going up to Mark Zuckerberg and you're asking." how does Facebook make money? It's like, okay, I mean, you just waste, you know, you have a finite amount of time whenever you get to ask questions here. It used to drive me absolutely nuts. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I'm actually curious how it's been for you as you have gone from this anti-establishment figure to like now you're a cnn commentator now you're a mainstream i mean i would call you a mainstream figure in the democratic party or at least a um, established one so how has it been like the how have your ideas been received because we talked about on the show at the time like 
at first they would laugh at you, then they would see you pass them in the polls, then they would drop out and you would still be on the stage. And you know, then you would outraise them, then you would outpoll them, and it was kind of a fun cycle. At what point did they start to take you seriously? And even now, you know, now that the campaign is over, in what way, how do they engage with your ideas? Is it with sincerity or is it with like a, oh, you know, goofy ideas? No, politicians uh, respond to their own incentives. And so politicians will be nice to you if, for example, you have a mailing list of a million people and you and they know that you can uh, potentially be a value to them. <laughs> uh-huh. So so the, the goal has to be that we uh, end up showing people that these ideas are right, but also that it's in their interest to embrace these ideas because it's good for them politically and it's bad for them politically if they don't. Uh, you know, that that's just the, the way that their incentives run. Um, in terms of how I'm currently received, uh, you know, f- folks are constantly congratulating me on the race, the campaign. And at this point, 55% of Americans are for universal basic income and something like 76% are for cash relief. Yep. So most people know that the ideas are right at this point. Um, the question is to your earlier inquiry, how mm. the heck do you actually have the will of the people enacted by our legislators. And that is what I'm uh, tasked with right now, is figuring out how to rebuild that connection and make it so that not only can we all know what the right thing to do is, but that our lawmakers actually pass it. Uh, You know, I'll say, Sagar, it's like, you know, I agree with you that I have gone from being something of a fringe figure to a mainstream figure uh, by virtue of the math. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, if you be if you have a big enough following, then you can't really even define yourself as not um, not part of like the, the mainstream. So thank you, Yang Yang. And thank you to everyone who made that happen. You individually, too, Sagar, for always being intellectually genuine uh, and receptive. Um, but I still don't think that like I'm considered part of the establishment um, in, in many respects, I would say certainly not the political establishment. I don't live in DC. I don't know a lot of the people. Um, yeah. So, I mean, from, from my perspective, frankly, I was running and then the race ended and then COVID hit and I've just been in my study. So, so it's, it's hard to determine how uh, fundamental the transformation has been. Well, so tell me what's your theory of the case on how change is made. I mean, I, one of the ones, and this this is an Elizabeth Warren point, but I've believed this for a long time. I've studied the New Deal, you know, Civil Rights Act, so much more, like how this stuff actually all came to pass. At the end of the day, a lot of it was what you referenced earlier, earmarks, horse trading, and personnel, more than anything. It was having like a committed 100 to 1,000 people who were well-versed in your ideology that were able, and also qualified, like well-educated, qualified, all of that, they were able to come in and kick the door in on day one. Whenever people ask me why the Trump presidency um, didn't live up to its working ideals, that's that's my response, which is that, look, the establishment is the establishment for a reason. They've got all the lawyers. They've got, you know, the, the RNC. They've got these people who are, like, very versed in their ideology. They're very good at it. They've been doing the same thing, administration after administration after administration. They've got programs. They've got the Federalist Society. They've got... All these, what I call them, are credentialing institutions. And, 
you know, when you're, you're a nascent political movement, kind of how I consider like the new right, um, you're just not going to have that. And I'm curious, like, how how have you seen, because you, like you're saying, you know, UBI could be at 50, it could be at 100% approval rating. But if people on Capitol Hill don't take it seriously, um, then it's not going anywhere. And it's one of the most frustrating parts. How do you think that that can be solved. I mean, do you even agree with that? Like, how do you think oh, that you can? Oh, I agree it? with that for sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, and, and so for me, we need members of Congress who ran on it and who embrace it. Uh, and then you need to show other members of Congress that being for it is better than um, being not for it. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe you need the blessings of some establishment think tanks and whatnot to say, yeah, this makes sense and this would work. Uh, but I agree with you. You need to cross each of those bridges to try and get it across the finish line. Yeah, and I think that that's such an important... That's something I try and make my listeners understand is I'm like, what you want doesn't actually matter unless like you have the infrastructure in DC in order to actually make that happen. So last thing here, Andrew, it, I, asked, um, I asked my followers, I asked a lot of people, I said, what should I ask Andrew Yang? The number one question um, that they wanted to know was why you support Biden. Um, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about it. No, running for president, you do get to know the various candidates. Um, and and I, I think given the nature of your audience, it's why do I support Biden versus Trump, I suppose, seems mm -hmm. to be the, yeah. the, the question. Uh, and I just don't think Trump has the right qualities to govern. Uh, you know, just think he's like a um, like a narcissist who uh, doesn't have the makeup, doesn't have the right makeup. Um, and I think that, so I'm not someone that like, there, there are some people who, um, I, who disagree with the fact that American institutions have been failing the American people for a long time. I think there's something you and I have in common and many Trumpers have in common. I a hundred percent believe that many of our institutions have been failing us for quite some time and that we have been waking up to that increasingly. Uh, now, I think that certain Americans have woken up to it more than others. Mm -hmm. There are some Americans who think that things are working just fine. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not one of them. Uh, and it's one reason why, you know, I, I think <laughs> that there has been a gap between me and certain other people. Um, but I, I just don't think that Trump is the figure you bring in to uh, make the right kind of changes. Uh, and I don't see eye to eye with Joe on everything. Uh, but having gotten to know Joe, I think he's a fairly non-ideological, pragmatic guy who wants to try and find the best path forward. He'll have really good people uh, with and around him. Uh, and he's the best shot we have at trying to actually get into the roots of some of these problems. Um, now, speaking forthrightly, I ran for president, so I thought that I would be a great choice. But you know, if you give me a choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, it's going to be Joe every yeah, day. Of the I mean, week. Yeah. pretty utilitarian, but I think a very fair case to make. Anyway, Andrew, I really appreciate you joining the podcast and letting me on your podcast, man. It was a great discussion. Thank you. Oh, Sagar, it's a pleasure, man. Yeah. And um, thank you for being one of the journalists who always had like like a real air of curiosity uh, and intellectual openness to my campaign. Like that, that's something. Maybe it's your relative youth, or maybe um, the fact that you're you know, uh, Asian-American as, as well, where you saw it's like, huh, like, or maybe just that you like facts and figures. I actually appreciated your critique. Um, there, one of the things you wrote in your book um, mm -hmm. about me was like, hey, is Andrew Yang right about automation or is it trade? Like, I, I lean more towards globalization, but 
you know, like this is the kind of conversation you should be having as opposed to the other nonsense. Like, like that was actually one of the most disciplined journalistic responses to my campaign that I saw because and, and that was one of the things that scared the shit out of me is like like people are having the usual argument of symbols and then I come on the scene and I'm like, hey, here's some facts and figures. Yep. Uh, and the, the level of journalistic inquiry into my facts and figures was so low where like like there, there weren't many people being like, is this right? <laughs> like, did yeah. we indeed yeah. get rid of? Five million manufacturing jobs, like, um, yes. Like, what was the composition? Like, you actually went the step to say, like, what was the cause of the loss of five million manufacturing jobs? And you were like, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Certainly, it's like a combination of these things. Like, most journalists did just did not seem to care to actually engage um, on that. And then you have to ask yourself, wait a minute. Like, let's say I just change the number. Let's say instead of, like, we, lo- we lost five million manufacturing jobs, we lost ten. Yeah. 12. Like at, at what point does it matter <laughs> like, yeah, right. like to you? Yeah. And uh, and to most journalists, like it could be any number and it just does not matter. Like they're, they're not actually cataloging uh, the progress of our way of life. Um, they're, they're cataloging something else. Um, and that's what we have to change. I think you're absolutely right, Andrew, which is that cataloging the day-to-day kind of ins and outs palace intrigue of washington is not even close to cataloging trade automation the very way that we structure live our lives our standard of life to to me it's all about that you know how healthy are we how mentally healthy are we how are our kids doing how's our family formation rate uh no like that that would be probably like a very positive indicator like Mm -hmm. how addicted to substances are we Uh, how optimistic are we how dynamic are we culturally, economically? Are people starting businesses? You know, to me, small businesses are the lifeblood of so many communities. And if you have everyone just showing up to work at Amazon, like that's kind of terrible. That's sort of yeah. dystopian. Yeah. You know, at some point, Amazon should just start assigning us overalls and say like, hey, here are your Amazon overalls. <laughs> it's the American way. It's got a big A on the front. You know, <laughs> like... Uh, we could be the United States of Amazon. They could like take over the flag. Maybe yeah. if they pay enough, they could freaking sponsor our flag. <laughs> I'm, 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 uh, Deep. I've gotten very dark and dystopian, but yeah, dystopian. Like, like, but but these but these are to me like the right. You you had some of the right questions, and you engaged with them more uh, rigorously than most any other journalist I saw. Honestly, thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate that. Appreciate you joining us, man. Thank you. No problem, Sagar. It's great talking to you. You too.